Thanks for listening. The following audio is a teaching from Calvary Tucson's Young Adult Ministry, Ignition. For more teachings, information, or if you'd like to support our ministry, please visit us online at ignitiontucson.com. We pray you're blessed by the message. Father, we want to thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy, your goodness. Lord, for so many reasons, we can praise you and, and, and worship you as we did tonight. We thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to approach you and your throne in song and uh, just to delight your heart in the praises of our lips, the praises of our hearts, Lord. We also pray for our study, God, that you'd bless us, that you'd be our, holy, uh, be our teacher, that the Holy Spirit would take over and instruct us in the words of truth that we find in the pages of Scripture. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. Well, when we strive instead of trust... When you strive for things instead of trust, what happens? We're going to see some byproducts of what takes place when we do that, when we see the example that Abram and Sarai give us in Genesis chapter 16 tonight. But if if I were going to stand up here and give you guys a motivational message, an unbiblical motivational message, which a lot of people do out there, I would say something like, you guys need to take control. Right? Y'all need to grab life by the horns, grab the bull by the horns, things like that. Or here's one we hear a lot. Um, God helps those who help themselves, right? Can I get an amen? Or, or one I recently heard was, uh, things may come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. So get out there and hustle, y'all. So I could, I could be up here and I could preach this motivational message to you guys. And these are some popular mottos that may motivate people, but I want to tell you they're not biblical and these aren't conducive to a life of faith. They, they, they can work well in the world of commerce, in the business world, but they do not work with your life of faith with God. In fact, all of these things produce the desire to strive. That's what they're intended to do. Their desire, it's, it's for a, a, a CEO of a company who wants his employees to perform. And it, it induces this desire to strive. But it's also a dangerous thing when you begin to strive in the calling of God when you begin to strive in the midst of faith. Now, I do want to, to qualify this. There are times in Scripture where, for instance, Paul encourages Timothy to, to uh, give himself entirely to his calling so that his progress may be evident to all. There are times where we work hard, we, sh- we push forward, and we really try hard for God, but it's always in his calling, in his purpose, and in his timing. We never simply strive, and we're going to see reasons why we don't do that. A quick uh, story for you guys. Last summer, I was doing some work in my backyard. Like most everybody, I was trying to set up a system to where I could work out at my house because all the gyms were closed. So I was digging fence post holes so I could put up a pull-up bar rig. And I thought I'd work smarter and not harder. So what I did was I went to Home Depot and I ordered, uh, I rented an auger, one of these fence augers. And the thing about augers is if you're not smart and you rent an auger, you'll still work harder. And if, that's, it, that's if you don't kill yourself in the process. Apparently, there are like tons of auger accidents that take place during the year, which I wasn't aware of, but I became one of them, one of the statistics of that, uh, this last summer. So, um, so what happened was I, I got about 12 inches into the ground, and I hit Tucson's infamous caliche layer. You know that layer of like concrete that's about eight, 12 to 18 inches down. And the auger just stopped working. It, it wasn't making much progress. And so I took life by the horns, y'all. I grabbed, I grabbed a hold of that auger, and I, I leaned on that thing, like with my body weight, and I was like, yeah, riding that bull. And, um, 
And it, you're not supposed to do that with an auger, by the way. In fact, there's probably a picture of some idiot like me on it with a big X doing what I was doing. I think, I think there was. I think I looked at that after the fact and like, I, shouldn't, I should have read the instructions first. That was one lesson I learned. So, uh, and so what, what ended up happening is, sure enough, the, the auger bit locked up into the caliche, and the top of that thing started spinning on me like a helicopter. And I don't know if you've ever been involved in something traumatic, but it happens so quick, but it happens in slow motion. You know what I mean? And so this thing started spinning on me, and I'm like trying to let go, and I could not let go of this thing. And it whipped me around, and it pulled on my shoulder so hard. Guys, I thought it ripped my shoulder out of socket. It was instantly like burning. It, it was excruciating. Now, a cool testimony of prayer. My wife saw the thing happen. She came running out like, what do I do? And so uh, my wife and kids, they actually prayed over me. And no joke, like two or three hours later, I had full mobility of my shoulder, which I thought for certain I was going to have to have surgery. Like, it hurt so bad. The pain was gone, and I had full mobility. So testimony to prayer. But what I learned that day, the lesson that I learned that day, other than how much I prefer a nice trench shovel now over an auger, um, is that you don't take control of the auger. You don't take control of it. You let the auger do the work, right? And the same is true for a life of faith, guys. A life of faith is not about taking charge. It's not about taking control. It's about holding on to the Lord and allowing Him to work His will in His time in your life. That's what a life of faith is supposed to look like. Now, we've been following throughout Genesis this amazing account of God interacting with a man named Abram and calling him out of his his homeland into a new country with the purpose, the promise of making him into a great nation. Now, the, the most important and significant piece to this promise was still missing 15 years later, and that is a child. He still didn't have a kid 15 years later. Um... Last week, we talked about how God's timing for our promise is often a lot slower than we desire. This was discouraging for Abram. God was trying to encourage Abram last chapter. Fear not. You haven't missed the opportunity. Trust me. I'm still working on your behalf. And here he is, discouraged. Not only him, but Sarai. I would say even more so discouraged for reasons that I'll, I'll speak to in just a moment here. But... We see tonight in our text, this discouragement caused Sarai and Abram to strive rather than trust. And we'll see this difficult uh, situation unfold and bring trauma to their maidservant, Hagar. And we'll see God interact with Hagar in this chapter as well. So let's jump right in as God has so much for us in this text. Verse 1 says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. P.S. They likely acquired her during their time of backsliding, in a sense, in Egypt. Verse 2, And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Y'all, don't make big decisions on it may be. Don't make huge life-altering decisions on it could be. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now, it can be a difficult thing in our day and age for women to not be able to bear children. I have friends who have gone through this difficult season and it's it's hard to watch as they would make amazing mothers 
And it's, it, you ask yourself that question, why would God allow them and not allow them? And it can be very discouraging in this season, but even more so in the day and age when Sarai lived. You see, it wasn't right, but in that day, much of a woman's value was placed upon her ability to bear children. Again, it's not right, but that's how their culture viewed this. In fact, riches weren't merely measured in gold and silver and livestock. They were also measured in how many children you had, the size of your family. And if you could not bear children, you, you would be considered by many an unprofitable wife. Barren women were also uh, often thought less of, and they would even be considered cursed by God. That God hasn't opened their womb, that they must have been sinners or something was wrong with their relationship with God. So this was a difficult stigma that Sarah had to carry, and this caused her to think like Eve in the garden. This pressure, this cultural pressure upon her caused her to be tempted to step outside the will of God to meet a felt need. Isn't that what Eve did? She saw the fruit and she had this felt need that she could attain, but it had to be outside the will of God. And just like Adam, Abram follows the voice of his wife. So what we learned tonight, guys, is husbands, never listen to your wives, ever. <laughs> That's what, write that down. No, just kidding. You don't say amen to that. You'll all be in trouble. You'll be in trouble. That's not the message I'm preaching tonight. In fact, it's, I find it interesting how frequent my wife's voice is similar to the Holy Spirit's voice in my life. But what we do see here is a reminder that women, wives, have tremendous power and influence in the life of their husband. You need to realize that. Women, you have, when, when God brings you to a, into a marriage, you have so much emotional power over your husband. Not over, I shouldn't say it that way. You have so much influence in the life of your husband. In a healthy marriage, your wife, the, the man's wife means so much to him for his emotional stability, for his uh, ability to be encouraged. The wife plays such a huge role. You need to realize the power that women have in the lives of the men around them emotionally. We need, we've talked about this. We, men and women need each other. Yes, husbands are required to lead and take responsibility for the spiritual condition of their home, but wives have this tremendous spiritual impact as well, and therefore you have responsibility, and you will be held accountable for that responsibility. But marriage is this partnership, and in this partnership of marriage, husbands and wives, the way it's designed is husbands and wives were different. I don't know if that's a surprise to you. Very different. And we have strengths and we have weaknesses that are different. And the way this partnership is designed is that the husbands need to be strong where the wives struggle. And the wives need to be strong for the husbands where the husbands tend to struggle. And we see this dynamic breakdown in Abram and Sarai's relationship. Now, sexual temptation, for the most part, in most cases, is more of a struggle for men than it is for the woman. And we see here in Sarai's insecurities and pressures, she opens the door for Abram to be tempted sexually. She wasn't protecting her partner where he was weak and where she could have been strong. And on the other hand, you have, in most cases, the woman in the relationship struggles more with the need for security, the need to keep up appearances of cultural pressures. And yet here we have Abram seeming to fail to assure Sarai of her value despite her 
ability to have kids. So this, this breakdown happens within the, in the marriage. It's been said that Sarai's big mistake was thinking that she wasn't a part of Abram's calling. That as Abram's wife, she started believing maybe God wasn't calling her to the same calling as Abram. After all, didn't she say, God has prevented me? Maybe God doesn't want me a part of this, Abram, which was the furthest thing from the truth. A wife and a husband's calling are the same. If a husband is called to something, the wife will be called to it as well. If the wife is called to something, it will be a partnership by which they fulfill that calling together. And therefore, if Abram's big mistake was thinking she was not a part of that calling, then where Abram dropped the ball was in not assuring her that she was a part of that calling. Now, most of you aren't married, but look ahead if God provides a wife or a husband for you. Understand this dynamic. And understand, as men, this is a frequent thing that happens uh, as, as a pastor, it, uh, many pastors' wives find themselves doubting whether or not they're a hindrance to their husband's ministry. And it requires re- assurance. Hey, you are, you are essential to what I'm doing here. The same is true for you, not just a pastoral context, but the same is true for your calling as well. So what I want to say to you ladies is don't pay too much attention to how the culture tells you to look or act or what you need to possess to be a real woman. Don't allow like the keeping up with the Joneses or your desire to feel secure. Don't allow that to take over. You need to be chiefly concerned with who God desires you to be. And guess what? You will be beautiful if you do that. You will be purposeful if you do that. You will be valuable if you pursue who God desires you to be. Amen? Verse 3. So Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, uh, gave her, gave Abram her husband as a wife. So not only was this a surrogate situation, but he, he actually ended up marrying Hagar and having multiple wives. And you, obviously you can't read a passage like this and not talk about polygamy for a moment. Polygamy was common in Abram's day. Uh, it was culturally accepted. It was the norm And it's just one more reminder that the culture is not always correct with what is healthy and what is right. It was it was acceptable, yeah. It was you know it was it was okay to do, but it didn't make it right. It didn't make it healthy, as we'll see. And I could go off on many tangents as to how our society does this today. All the different things that the society out there says is normal or right or okay and healthy when it's so far from right and so far from healthy. Throughout the Bible, though, we do read of men. Even men of faith, great men of renown within the faith, who take multiple wives. But it's in these sections of Scripture, guys, that we need to differentiate between descriptive and prescriptive. And what I mean by that is just because something is said in the Bible doesn't mean it's prescribed by the Bible. Men, use, men have used these passages to say, oh, this is why I can cheat on my wife. This is why I can have multiple uh, sex partners. is because, Look at these holy men. They had multiple wives. God didn't strike them dead. They, they failed to di- distinguish the difference between something described in Scripture versus whether or not the Bible's prescribing that for you. The Bible is not prescribing polygamy for anyone. The Bible also records Jesus telling Judas to go betray him. But I don't recommend you doing that. 
right? There's a lot of things in the Bible you can read about that aren't prescriptive for you. And whenever you do see polygamy pop up in the text, you'll also see it, mark my words and and check it out, you'll see it followed by drama, heartache, and broken families. Just a few generations later, Noah's grandson follows suit and takes four wives. And it's a mess, and his life is drama. David, it was David's undoing. It was Solomon's undoing, taking on multiplying wives. Polygamy is not what God has for us. But nevertheless, we see it here take place in Abram and Sarai's life as they strive, as they take control. Verse 4, and it says, And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave you my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. So what's happening here is is Abram goes into Hagar, and she conceives But Hagar is now one of Sarai's wives, and so the relationship dynamic is changing. And Hagar now begins to feel jealousy and competition and despise Sarai. She's intended to be the surrogate mother, but as this unfolds, Sarai's feelings of inadequacy only grow greater. Because now it's confirmed, it could have either been Abram or Sarai preventing them from having kids. But now it's confirmed that it was Sarai that was, quote, in the way. When all the while, God knew what he was doing. But now Sarai's inadequacies are just more confirmed to her, and she's hurting. And she goes to Abram, and she says, look at all this, this is falling apart, and it's your fault. And Abram could have been like, well, it was your idea, right? But he doesn't, but he handles it poorly. Instead of taking responsibility and overseeing this spiritually, he says, you're mad, go take it out on her. Don't take it out on me. And that's what Sarai does, and she mistreats Hagar. Now, as we get into this next section, for a moment in Scripture, the story shifts from Abram and God interacting with one another to God dealing directly with Hagar. And this is a very important and even comforting piece of Scripture because it shows us the angel of the Lord showing up on scene. Now, it'll, when it says the angel of the Lord, um, oftentimes that's thought of as another uh, Christophany, similar to Melchizedek. That G, it's a pre-incarnate Jesus showing up face-to-face to interact with somebody, communicate with somebody. And we see this, the angel of the Lord show up to minister to this hurting woman, to Hagar, this Egyptian maidservant who's feeling pain. And I love what this says about the Lord. Psalm 34 tells us that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. When God sees someone who is just utterly broken and hurt, maybe even abused or grieving, God is near to that person. He may not always feel near, but He is near to that person. And in this next section, we're going to see God show up in Hagar's life to interact with a person in pain. And we're going to learn a few things about how God, uh, about what we should view in our seasons of, of sorrow, in our seasons of pain, just from, from Hagar's experience here. Verse 7, it says, The angel of the Lord found her 
by a spring of water. God was pursuing Hagar. She was hurt, broken, and God pursued her. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? So as he shows up, the first thing I see right away about our seasons of sorrow is that God is never closer to us, guys, than when we're experiencing suffering. God is so close to us in the midst of suffering. Here he shows up like never before in the life of of Hagar. And it's in the midst of her pain that he does so. See, this is what Paul wrote about in Philippians chapter 3. I don't know if you remember this passage, but he says that he longed to know the fellowship of suffering. Now, I'm convinced he wasn't longing for more suffering. Paul had plenty of suffering in his life. What he was saying was he longed for the fellowship of God that accompanies such suffering. That it's a sweet fellowship. It's a closeness to God. You guys see, you got to understand something about our faith. Faith is more about proximity to God than it is about anything else. Faith is about closeness to God more than it is about performing for God. And for this reason, seasons of suffering can actually be sweet spiritual seasons. You don't always realize it in the season itself because of all the grief and the way grief can fog your mind or the, the way how bad the pain hurts and the sorrow. But if you've ever come out of these bouts and you look back, you know that that was a sweet spiritual season where you were closer to God in that season like never before. Faith is more about proximity to God than anything else. And in sorrow, God's nearness is felt more than ever. Look at this. Hagar becomes one of the few people in history who had the privilege of seeing the angel of the Lord face to face. And it was because of the suffering she encountered on this road. Verse, nine goes, or verse 8 goes on to say, She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. Return to her? Return to these people who were mistreating me and abusing me? Return. He says return. And I want to tell you guys, side note here, God doesn't always want us to run from our problems. I know that's often our first knee-jerk desire is to get out, to run from our problems. But oftentimes God uses our problems. Now, I will say, God will never have you, never make you be in an abusive relationship. Remember, Abraham, Abraham and Sarai were godly individuals. They had a lapse of judgment. And this was a moment where they made a mistake, but they're still, follow, they're still following God. And so God isn't sending Hagar back into a very unhealthy situation with abusers who are beating her or who are sexually taking advantage of her, God will never make you go back into a relationship like that. If you're in one, you need to get out ASAP, okay? But here, it's a difficult season. It's like that that boss that totally just wrecked things. You're like, I hate working for that person. And God's like, hey, I'll protect you. I'll look after you. Just go back. God oftentimes uses the drama in our lives, the difficult relationships. He says, go back. Verse 10, the angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for the multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because uh, the Lord has listened to your affliction and he shall be a wild donkey of a man. I went to school with a few wild donkeys of men. 
And his hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So God basically says, look, go back to those who mistreated you. I know you don't want to. I know it's the farthest thing from what you desire to do, but go back and I will, t- I will protect you. I will take care of you and I will bless you. In fact, God promises to bless Hagar with the same blessing as Abram. Do you notice that? I'll make you a great nation. I will, I will make your son into a, this amazing nation. And a lot of scholars believe that Ishmael was actually the one who fathered many of the Arab nations. But another thing that shows me about our difficulties and our seasons of suffering is that that they are never wasted. Our suffering is never wasted in God. I, I preface that by saying, in God, in Christ, your sufferings are never wasted. If you're not in Christ, tragically, everything is wasted. Your sufferings, your pleasures, your accomplishments, the ups and downs of life are a complete waste if you don't have Jesus in your life. It results in spiritual death and eternal condemnation. So I have to preface it by saying, if you know God, if you suffer in God, it's never, ever a waste. Now, it's also not always pleasing or pleasurable or easy or convenient, but take heart because it's also never wasted. God never wastes our experiences, especially our suffering. 